You're listening to The Trident, a podcast on irregular warfare and related issues in the international security environment. The Trident is sponsored by the U.S. Naval War College's Center on Irregular Warfare and Armed Groups. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, retired Army Colonel Dave Brown and director of the Center on Irregular Warfare here at the college. Welcome this morning to our episode of uh, podcast, The Trident, from U.S. Naval War College Center on our, uh, Irregular Warfare and Armed Groups. Today, I'm joined uh, by my co-host, uh, Dr. Timothy Hoyt, colleague here at the War College. He's a strategy professor here at the college, and he's also holds the John Nicholas Brown Chair of Counterterrorism. And we're joined with two guests uh, this morning, uh, retired Lieutenant General David Barno. And General Barno, probably uh, most well-known, having been the overall U.S. and coalition commander in Afghanistan between the years 2003 and 2005. He's also a professor of practice at John Hopkins uh, uh, School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, and also contributing editor and columnist for War on the Rocks. And, sir, we welcome you uh, with us today. And finally, we have, uh, as a guest with us as well, uh, Dr. Nora Bensel. And she is also a professor of practice at John Hopkins uh, SICE and an expert on U.S. defense policy, military operations, future of warfare, an often co-contributor and writer with uh, General Barno, and uh, has written a number of things on the changing character of war and contemporary challenges facing the U.S. military. So we thank you for joining us this morning on this episode of The Trident. Entitled this episode, uh, The Edge of Tomorrow, uh, analyzing emerging IW trends. I picked that title because I think that movie is really cool, science fiction movie. But uh, the idea of looking at what is in front of us, but analyzing things that are recurring, perhaps over and over, and perhaps uh, new things that are emerging in this area of the uh, two wars that we're facing. So what are those emerging trends in the character of both irregular warfare and the ongoing conflicts in both Ukraine and Gaza. I'll take one quote from a recent article that uh, um, General Barno and Nora have uh, written, um, that real wars intrude to shatter hypothetical concepts and to show how the ever-changing interaction of doctrine, technology, and leadership does affect the character of war. One quick comment before uh, we go on about, we're gonna be talking this morning about what is changing, Maybe one comment about what is not changing. I notice in the piece that you're careful to use the Clausewitzian notion that the nature of war rarely, if ever, changes, and yet the character of war does. So what is not changing? War itself, political, violent, fog, friction, interaction, and the character of irregular warfare, which is a struggle um, that seeks to coerce through both indirect, non-attributable, and asymmetrical activities. And so these are approaches that favor indirect and asymmetrical warfare approaches. thought maybe we turn uh, to General Barno first, and I uh, noticed in the beginning of uh, the piece that you did on War on the Rocks, uh, learning from real wars, Gaza and Ukraine, that you talked, both of you, about how these wars are very different in their context. And I thought maybe you could start us off with that, uh, John. Sure. I think I'd also flag, and I was thinking about this before we started this morning, that if we were having this conversation even three years ago, uh, we wouldn't be talking about either of these wars. They were somewhere over the horizon at that point in time and, and largely unanticipated, as usual. Uh, but we would have been talking about the potential of a conflict with China and all the challenges therein and the fact that it would be a maritime domain and that it would involve large clashes of conventional forces, especially perhaps naval and air forces. And yet here we are today, three, year, three years on, with two very significant conflicts raging, one in uh, Eastern Europe, which uh, was 
was something nobody really seriously anticipated a couple of years ago. And then one in Gaza that's erupted since October 7th. It's a very, very different conflict being fought in a dense urban area. So the, they couldn't be more starkly different than a potential war with China, which, again, uh, consumed a lot of the thinking inside our national security establishment inside the U.S. military uh, in recent years. And it, and it you know, one of the reasons we wrote this column, uh, Dr. Ben Sahel and I, to focus on the reality that you know, real wars take you in different directions and they cover a lot of different, you know, figurative territory other than the one you might expect. And so, again, the two wars we're talking about today in, in, in Ukraine, uh, a massive conflict between con largely conventionally armed forces that's given us everything from uh, a return to trench warfare that resembles World War One and heavy artillery duels to the massive introduction of drones uh, on the battlefield and a command and control network, you know, powered from our outer space by a, a commercial enterprise. Again, something that, you know, is is relatively new in the, in the annals of warfare. And then in Gaza, of course, the uh, massive urban warfare, um, you know, a, a city state of you know 1.1 million people who have been immersed in this fight within which Hamas has tunneled literally and figuratively into, you know, the, the sinews of that nation, causing the Israeli Defense Forces to have to fight you know, an urban war against a terrorist group that's buried intentionally inside a civilian population and is underground, above ground, uh, in presenting some challenges that simply haven't, you know, been something we've seen before. And if I could quickly jump in, one of the things I think is so interesting, tragic, but interesting, is that you these two wars are really represent almost the ends of the spectrum of conflict simultaneously. I mean, you know, we, as General Barno said, uh, we have an irregular war involving a lot of urban warfare, very difficult terrain, you know, that falls squarely on, you know, what is considered lower intensity conflict, although I hate that term, because it still involves a lot of fighting and, and, and people's dying. And uh, in Ukraine, we see an example of a large-scale conventional war. It's not the large-scale conventional war that we were thinking that we would see, right? That was China in two different domains, but it is nevertheless pretty much at the high end of the conflict spectrum, um, you know, one step short of a nuclear exchange, right? So we have two simultaneous wars that are at two different ends of the conflict spectrum, neither of which the U.S. anticipated. And so we're learning a lot of lessons in both types of warfare in real time, which again, although uh, you know these wars are tragic, they do offer an opportunity for the U.S. military to learn lessons about how the character of war is changing without itself being a combatant at these two different ends of the spectrum. I think one other thing, um, uh, the typology of wars that we teach at uh, Newport, include both of these kinds of wars and then a third. Um, we, we talk about three boxes of wars with the most frequent in the in the modern world being internal wars, um, which have a large irregular component. Uh, and then regional wars that are primarily bilateral, but are often uh, fought for hegemony or territorial control within a bounded region. These may invite outside support and escalate and expand. But I think if we look at those, if we look at the cases we're studying today, Gaza fits neatly in the third box of war. And the Ukraine war is a very good example of the second type. The first, the first box of war that we study, um, which is fairly rare, but is also driving our national security strategy, as, as General Barna said, is great power competition leading to conflict, which would be trans-regional or global in scope between great powers and fought for very high stakes. So looking at these wars may tell us something about uh, the strategic competition that the national security strategy is driving us to consider. One thing that has come up regularly, and maybe we can talk about in a bit, um, many people think that both of these wars are examples of proxy wars. And that's something we saw in the Cold War. That terminology has come back again. I think we probably need to clean it up and think about it somewhat differently than we did in the Cold War. But certainly it resonates with our historical experience. You know, so if you're if you're thinking about what we're staring at, and it's extraordinarily important for security studies professionals like yourselves um, and our students and practitioners out there to be staring at the conflicts that we see occurring in front of us. On the one hand, there's nothing new under the sun. It's that um, 
it's almost Groundhog Day in terms of it's irregular warfare is not new. Warfare itself is not new. And yet there are things that are emerging in front of us. And that's particularly uh, what I was struck uh, with in some of the aspects of your article. Maybe we'll go back to Dr. Bensell and, and begin to highlight at least a few things that you believe that are most significant in what we're seeing emerging in, in both of these conflicts. Yeah, I think uh, probably the single biggest thing that we are seeing play out in both of these wars is the ubiquity and, frankly, innovative use of drones at scale. Uh, and at mass, which we haven't really seen in conflicts before. Yes, drones have been around for a long time, um, but the fact that they're getting uh, cheaper, that uh, groups like Hamas can uh, procure very capable drones uh, uh, at relatively low cost, right? It used to be the domain of nation states that could pay for these things. The costs have come down so much that that is no longer true. Um, you know, what uh, What they've... Uh, in both uh, Gaza and in Ukraine, uh, the fighters have made, especially the Ukrainian side in the Russia-Ukraine war, have used drones in a way that we've never seen before. They're really um, saturating what has been called the air littoral, right? The space between the ground and where uh, advanced jets fly, you know, so that much uh, closer part of the air to earth. Uh, I like that term air littoral for the parallel to the sea littoral, right? The part that's really close by. And drones have had enormous strategic effects on, in both conflicts. I think we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit later about how Ukraine has used drones to effectively achieve the effect of a Ukrainian Navy that doesn't really exist. Right? They've been able to take out naval vessels without having a navy, which is remarkable. Um, and their use in uh, both uh, armed drones for fighting and their use in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance is providing a transparency of the battlefield that we've never seen before. That's something that both uh, General Barno and I wrote about uh, shortly after the Ukraine war broke out. Uh, that between drones that you can operate yourselves at low cost and, uh, frankly, low cost satellite imagery that's available for purchase, no matter who you are, uh, at relatively low cost compared to what they used to be, you can see a lot of what's going on. And that gives an advantage to finders rather than hiders. And we're seeing those dynamics play out uh, in both of these wars as well. Just a comment on the on the. Uh littoral piece and the naval connection. It's very interesting, just within the last 24 hours, currently uh, there are reports that Ukraine has sunk a, a second warship in the Black Sea with the use of naval drones. I believe that's the second time in two weeks that we've seen, and I believe this was a major transport carrier. So uh, just exactly what uh, Dr. Bensell was describing is occurring right in front of us. And these drones, as you said, are ubiquitous. They are all over the battlefield, um, particularly in Ukraine. And there are a lot of other significant actions that are being done with, with this type of uh, technology that's growing right in front of us. I think one of the things that this should uh, send shockwaves in the direction of the U.S. military is what does this mean for air warfare? What does this mean for naval warfare? On the air warfare side, the United States has got the, the most expensive, the most highly technologically sophisticated air arms in the world. Both the Navy, Air Force, to a lesser extent, the Marines have got fighters and bombers and, and strike aircraft that are the best in the world. I was reading this week that the unit cost of the newest U.S. fighter, which is shared by all three services, the F-35, $140 million a copy, according to the General Accountability Office. That's a massive amount of money to put in a single aircraft piloted by an individual that is now going to be challenged by drones that cost hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of dollars en masse that that fighter is a very poor response for. And so one of the things we, we advanced in, in this column is the idea that air superiority is changing and that the Air Force, which has always owned that space, lock, stock, and barrel, and they're very proud of that, no, no longer has the kind of force that can actually control the air in this scene between land and airspace where fighters operate, the air littoral, as Dr. Bensell has pointed out. We, we are, we're out of Schlitz in that particular arena right now, and U.S. Air Force, which traditionally has had that mission and has bought the most exquisite platforms to perform that mission, 
is entirely out of position in many ways with the air, air fleet it currently has. And so this is a huge problem. There's another dimension that we can talk about on the naval side, but this is a massive problem for the U.S. military and U.S. air forces and all the services because we have the wrong airplanes to be able to control this space. And we're going to have to figure that out very quickly. Yeah, just one really powerful example of this. We saw some analysis earlier this week from TX Hamas at National Defense University who did some back-of-the-envelope math and estimated uh, that the opportunity cost of one F-35 fighter could buy 64,000 drones uh, of Chinese make. Again, not a perfect comparison, but boy, does that give you a sense of scale and what we're talking about. We are spending, you know, the, the last estimate that I saw for the life cycle cost of the F-35 is $1.7 trillion. They're going to stay in service through the 2070s. Think about the opportunity cost in terms of drones. I'm not saying we shouldn't have F-35s, but an F-35, uh, you know, one F-35 for 64,000 drones makes you think about cost trade-offs, uh, you know, quite significantly. Now let's pull on to put that in perspective, just <laughs> before the new year, there were reports coming out that the Ukraine was losing 10,000 drones a month. So 64,000 drones is a half year of losses uh, for the Ukrainian armed forces, if that if that number is correct. I think it's reasonable to say it's somewhere somewhere in the ballpark. So two things. One is let's pull on this thread that uh, General Bardo mentioned. What are the implications for naval forces as well? I mean, we've, we're, we're basically seeing warships taken down uh, for the first time in the modern age uh, with drones and drone technology, at least close to shore. Yeah, I think one of the things you pointed out, the close to shore aspect, and I think the uh, in some ways, unfortunately, the U.S. Navy believes that the threat is only close to shore. That it's only in the littorals. It's only when they're in proximity to the land, uh, not in the blue water, uh, but out in the, the brown and the green water areas where the Navy is vulnerable to like the Houthi attacks we're seeing. And you know, here here is a very low end, you know, insurgent group that is actually using relatively simple technology within range of shore batteries to disrupt international shipping in the Red Sea uh, and is doing it at a fairly low cost. And the counters to that are are missing, frankly. You know, we're, we're, you know, in fact, U.S. Navy ships out there are shooting multi-million dollar missiles at $100,000 or $10,000 or $1,000 drones to take them down, which is a cost ratio we can't afford for very long. But I think the threat is actually at sea as well. I think it's in blue. Blue water threat is out there, and it's emerging and it's growing. It's not just a DF-21s and the long-range ballistic missiles. You're ultimately going to have the ability, maybe based on commercial shipping, which is everywhere in the world, it's out in the, the, the blue water transit transit areas, to launch swarms of drones against U.S. naval ships that are going to overcome the defenses those ships have today. That may be different five or 10 years from now, but today you can't shoot enough missiles to take out a drone swarm of a thousand drones attacking your, you know, Arleigh Burke destroyer. So, or, or your, you know, Ford class carrier for that matter. That's a huge problem. And, and I think we are largely, you know, whistling by the graveyard, ignoring that right now in the U S Navy. Well, Dr. Bensel mentioned the fact that um, we have the Ukraine, Ukraine doesn't have a Navy, but according to recent reports, They've sunk nearly one third of the Black Sea fleet that the Russians have, which is approximately about 80 ships, not all of them warships. But this is a significant development and emerging area that we've not seen someone without a Navy sink a third of a regional uh, sea fleet uh, in those numbers uh, in modern history. Um, let's also, to, and, and by the way, one other comment real quick on the tactical level um, in terms of the drones, it's changing the nature of, of tactical intelligence as well. So there's, you've got small units that are basically finding targets and seeing what's around the city, over the hill, behind the, the next block of, of buildings that is changing a little bit about um whether it's EW helping with deep strike um, intelligence for targeting that is giving a whole new aspect of tactical units, the ability for real-time intelligence right above them in that, in that low air envelope. I'd also point out, since we're talking about irregular warfare, at least in the Ukraine case, we're also seeing the use of stay behind 
um, partisans and probably special forces in ways that are are interesting. There are events that are happening, and I know that um, correlation is not causation and all that other stuff, but things keep blowing up deep inside Russia. Um, things like munitions factories, uh, planes at airfields, uh, train tunnels. Uh, there's clearly an aspect of the human side of irregular warfare that's being used on a number of different levels here, both to create deep strike capabilities for Ukraine that they don't have via technology or can only acquire slowly, but also using existing communications technology in the electronic spectrum and the um you know, the Skylink, um, these guys are calling in targets for conventional forces behind the lines, or at least it certainly looks like that. So there's an element of the human here as well. I, I know it's the drones are really new and special, but as we think about irregular warfare capabilities, even just the ability to have a cell phone suddenly makes an ordinary farmer extraordinarily lethal if they spot a target set and can, can communicate that to artillery. Yeah, I think that's a, a critical point, right? The fact that, uh, you know, the technologies are ubiquitous that are allowing people anywhere in the battle space to provide information about what's going on right in their neighborhood. Ukraine, since the really since the beginning of the war, has done a masterful job of trying to integrate all of that into a, uh, you know, operational picture that can then be sent back out even beyond its own forces to people uh, and drone squads you know, citizenry drone squads that have uh, created on their own, not in uniform, um, but, you know, Ukrainians helping the war effort, mm. launching their own drones, using target information provided by the government that has been submitted by other citizens. So it's a really brilliant use of these new technologies. And that's why I say there is a number of different effects combined with drones and that technology that enables targeting and an informational picture from the entire battlefield. You know, why we keep talking about what the transparency of the battlefield means, because you're going to be able to see a whole lot more if you can create an integrated, you know, operational picture from citizens submitting data based on their own, you know, immediate neighborhoods. So just as we, I'm, I'm listening to this conversation and thinking of some of the things that have already kind of come up, but at a macro sense, uh, something that Joe Borno said, basically that high tech is no guarantee of success. It's never really been, but in fact, we are very, very enamored with high tech. And yet uh, what we're seeing is things that have existed like drones before, but they're also being used in new combinations and in new ways on the battlefield that we've not seen. So I think these are emerging kind of trends that, that we need to continue to watch very carefully. I'd like to go into a, another area that you brought up in your article and in, in thinking about the difficulties of urban warfare. The U.S. military hasn't really fought in urban centers in quite a long time. And I think Gaza in particular is uh, demonstrating some real difficulties um, that we're seeing emerging in this area. Uh, let's, uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, this is that particular war in Gaza. Again, I noted earlier, you know, 1.1 million Gazan citizens, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 Hamas terrorists and fighters. Uh, and this this particular scenario is unique because Hamas has been in this area for decades and is has literally burrowed themselves into the infrastructure in Gaza, that they've got a hundreds of miles of, of tunnel networks that they've built and fortified underneath the city to make it essentially a fortress uh, that is covered by a civilian population and, and a civilian city that brings with that all of the international condemnation for strikes on, you know, the, the structures and the people above ground. So they they have, you know, that's very different than what the U.S. faced in, in Mosul and we were fighting against ISIS there with the Iraqi forces years ago. It's very different than what we've seen really in any other urban fight. John John Spencer at the Modern War Institute at West Point has, has written and spoke quite spoken quite a bit about this that this is this is a unique situation it's not simply fighting in a city with a million citizens it's fighting in a city where the, the your enemy has actually built that city into a fortress that he intends to defend and every citizen that gets killed by the adversary by the israeli defense forces you know is actually an advantage in the information war uh, which hamas has actually been masterful i think in in leveraging to you know 
build international condemnation of Israel, you know, forgetting kind of about how this war started back on October 7th. So I think that that's unique. And, and we've, we've written a number of times in different uh, fora about the, the need for the U.S. military to take massive urban warfare more seriously, that w- the U.S. military uh, has not fought a serious war in a war- urban area since World War II, fundamentally. Uh, and, and you know, even in, in Vietnam and Hue, as the Marines are, are quick to tell you, you know, big, major urban fight, but in a different kind of an urban setting than the, the skyscrapers and the hospitals and the apartment buildings that you see in, in Gaza every day. So, you know, this is, you know, the U.S. has generally talked about it. It's admired the problem in the U.S. military, but it's done very little to train, organize, and equip forces to actually fight and, and win in this kind of situation. I was going to say, there's one other thing that makes the urban fight in Gaza unique, and that's that uh, the Gazans are trapped, right? There's no uh, place for them to go. Egypt won't open its borders. So it makes it uh, an incredibly challenging urban environment to fight in. Um, And I certainly hope the U.S. in any future urban warfare would not be in a similar situation, right? But that also makes urban warfare more complicated in the sense that if you have civilians who are trying to leave and you're trying to raid buildings, right, there's an additional layer of complexity on who's who and those sorts of calculations. There's still, despite that difference, and I don't think we'll be uh, fighting in an urban area again where there's absolutely no egress routes, I still think there's a lot that the U.S. military can learn about urban operations because you're never going to have hospitals completely empty, right? You're never going to have those skyscrapers completely empty. And so how you manage that uh, there and and frankly, learning lessons, both uh, positive and negative, uh, perhaps from what the Israelis are doing, things to avoid and that aren't effective. We should always make sure to look at both sides right, uh, to, to draw tactical lessons. I think there's going to be a lot there for uh, the U.S. military to study and, and learn from. And interesting, again, a parallel or back to naval forces with the aircraft carrier task force, you have um, the airspace, you have the surface fight, and you have a subsurface fight. And U.S. military is particularly good at standoff uh, strikes, but in an urban environment where you have those kind of three levels, a high rise represents and the little air littoral that we've already talked about, you're having to deal with um, a whole different strata, plus the urban uh, process of, of uh, the difficulties of the cover and concealment in an urban environment. And then, of course, as Joe Barno pointed out, the intelligence on the tunnels was not Tremendous. I mean, we they knew the Israelis knew that there was tunnels, but mostly until that people I've talked to, they thought that there was 30 miles and not hundreds of miles, the things, the infrastructure they built underneath. And the difficulty then of fighting and clearing that is a three-stage problem that we've not dealt with. Very high, exquisite standoff capabilities, very good at that. This would invite completely new problem sets uh, trying to fight in in this type of arena. I, I think, I, I think the U.S. in some ways is overinvested in the concept of standoff. And, and I think, the and frankly, Israeli defense forces were as well going into this fight and that you, you can't achieve your military and your political objectives by launching weapons in, into an urban area, which is fundamentally, in this case, a sanctuary for your adversary without going in and fighting them on the ground. And, and you know, that that's another you know, revelation, I think, in a slightly different direction in, that we've seen both in Ukraine and in Gaza is that the value of infantry, of well-trained infantry that can fight in a variety of different scenarios, you know, trench warfare in in, in open country warfare with tanks and armored vehicles in cities, you know, clearing buildings and operating in rubbled areas with, you know, armored protection and armored mobility. We've begun to think of the idea that that firepower and precision strike, you know, this is the legacy of the first Gulf War, were the war winning, you know, models for us. And in reality, we're, we're seeing now that there are a number of fights out there and adversaries are keenly aware of what our strengths and weaknesses are. There are a number of fights out there that are going to take infantry fighting on the ground with tanks and armored vehicles, clearing buildings, clearing trench lines, you know, seizing territory in the same way we would have seen in World War II. And, and we're, again, underinvested in that realm relative to our, our high-tech capabilities. I think also both conflicts have um, 
they have elements of new and they have elements of old that are surprising. And the element of old in both conflicts here is the importance of mass and the need for conscript armies in some kinds of fights. And conscript armies cannot be as exquisite as an expensive all-volunteer force. So you can't quickly create the kinds of tactical and technical expertise that our much more exquisite forces have developed over a period of decades. Um, Israel put 300,000 people into the, into the fight early on um, and could only do that, again, because they have a conscript force. The levels of training and the levels of expertise of different units varied pretty widely as a result. But for both of these fights, numbers really mattered. And that's something that we had been moving away from. Again, you know, the Gulf War model was, a, was an elegant model. Um, but in a sustained fight against a peer adversary or even a large regional state like Ukraine, the requirement for numbers not only of personnel, but also of munitions and of equipment has shocked the West. Um, you know, Israel is demanding that we supply them with 155 millimeter artillery shells to carry out their fight in Gaza. Uh, that should tell us something about the intensity of the fight and the weapons that are being used. Without being critical, it just means they're using a lot of 155 millimeter shells, which Ukraine could use at the same time. This has stressed Western defense industry in ways that I think no one expected. I, I think it's interesting, uh, too, and I think that's a great, great point, Tim, in terms of the we we largely abandoned the idea that we could ever have a conscript military again. We would ever go back to a draft and your volunteer force only works as long as you've got a war that's the same size as your all volunteer force and that you can sustain with the all volunteer force. And we've had those wars for the last 20 years. Those are not likely to be the kind of wars that we will see if we get in a major power conflict, if we're even fighting a, a regional state, fighting North Korea which most Americans, you know, have nowhere in their in their horizon, that would re potentially require us uh, to you know, reenact the draft in order to have enough you know, human beings to get in there and, and do that kind of fighting that we're seeing in, in Ukraine today. So and in Gaza, for that matter, in urban areas. So I think that's uh, that's interesting. One other point on that, too, that I think the U.S. military needs to study a bit. You talked about the difficulty of you know, taking conscripts and giving them the advanced training you need to be in today's volunteer military. I think the Ukrainians are actually finding that they are in the way that they're doing this to integrate civilians rapidly into military units to perform functions such as drone warfare that they already have a basic level of skills at that don't require, you know, six months or a year of special military training to do. There, there's a lot of soldiers on the battlefield in yeah. Ukraine today that weren't soldiers six months ago, a year ago, and they didn't go through a, you know, a year-long training process to get there. And they're, they're being effective. They're delivering the goods. They're not perhaps at the standard that we see every day in the U.S. military, but they're, they're doing a fine, fine job out there, and they're fighting under some very difficult circumstances. Yeah. We particularly see this with drones, I think. Well, I think we also see it with some other tactical weapons too. I, I put a note down to myself about the, you know, the infantry strikes back. Um, we've had an argument back and forth and back and forth over decades about armor, anti-armor. We are again. Uh, I'm I'm very much a favor of heavy armored forces. Provides a lot of protection even in an urban environment. But when you get a bunch of infantry with javelins. And you can have individuals with very shoulder carry weapons destroying very expensive pieces of armor. That changes the calculus uh, a lot. And then, of course, you know, no one wants to pay attention to artillery in peacetime at all. And yet, in both conflicts, as Tim just pointed out, everybody is screaming for 155 millimeter artillery shells in massive numbers. And the damage that those artillery pieces are doing to infrastructure, but also creating rubble in the environment that Joe Barno just talked about. These are real significant. It's almost the revenge of artillery and infantry in these tactical engagements, but something that we really do, as you said, General, pay attention to uh, quite heavily. Yeah, and I would add to that, you know, the U.S. Army has changed its force structure in the past couple of years coming out of uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's cut infantry units to increase the number of armored formations, which makes sense if you're uh, 
continuing to focus on deterring the Russians from invading a NATO country, right? It makes sense to have more armor. We let armor capabilities atrophy because we didn't need them in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we sure needed more uh, light infantry. But now you're going to get into interesting questions, right? Because we're seeing infantry is really important as well. So do you have the right force structure in the army? Are you balancing that armor and infantry capabilities in the right way? And although, of course, uh, you know, this isn't the main issue that we're talking about here, you can't talk about any army force structure without talking about the recruiting crisis. And, you know, the fact that army force structure is shrinking overall for reasons that are fundamentally non-strategic. They have nothing to do with an assessment of what, you know, the United States needs to meet its strategic goals. So, you know, I think uh, the army is in a really tough place trying to figure out how to maximize capabilities again for very different types of wars that require different types of forces at a time when it is shrinking, not as a result of a strategic choice. It's a very difficult position to be in. And by the way, when you're doing recruitment, uh, infantry work um, is some of the hardest work that you do in the military. And so, not everybody wants to do that kind of work. So I think that even ups the recruiting problem just a, a little bit differently. <clears throat> I do want to move on to the third uh, aspect of uh, what you identified as some key emerging trends that that you wanted to look at in the writings that you've done recently. And that is uh, this idea of private companies and corporations and their role on, on the battlefield. Yeah, this is part of what we're seeing for the first time with drones and commercial satellites. You know, obviously, there have been private companies that have been involved in warfare for, you know, for generations. But we're seeing a very different dynamic these days where it is the commercial sector that is ahead of the Defense Department in a lot of the uh, most advanced technologies. We certainly didn't see that dynamic during the Cold War. It was the other way around. The Defense Department uh, led technological innovation, um, but it certainly hasn't since then. And so you find you find yourselves in these really bizarre situations where you've not thought through either from a governmental perspective or a legal perspective, what authority do you have over private companies that are essentially acting, if not directly as belligerents, then are providing essential support for one side or the other? And of course, the the most interesting and relevant case here is Elon Musk and Starlink. The Ukrainians... Effectiveness on the battlefield is directly tied to the access they have to the Starlink satellite communications network. It undergirds all of Ukrainian command and control. As most people who are listening to the podcast probably know, every now and then Elon Musk says he's going to cut off uh, Starlink access to Ukraine. He hasn't done it yet, but he has the power to do so. The government can't compel him to do so. Uh, you know, if he were directly providing information to the Russians, the United States government could go after him uh, for violating the sanctions. So, you know, the government does have some role there uh, against, you know, preventing an American uh, company from helping an adversary, but not providing a service to someone that the United States government wishes to support is not something the United States government can control. In the most extreme case, of course, the government does have the power to nationalize companies, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's inconceivable to me that that, uh, the government would do so absent the most clear uh, existential threat to the United States. So short of that, and Ukrainian is not an existential threat to the United States, although it has massive implications for U.S. security interests and the security environment, what do you do, right? What is there anything the government can do? What from a legal standpoint can you do? You know, we've never faced these kinds of questions before because private companies have never had the capability to aid one side or the other to such an extent as we see Elon Musk doing with Starlink today. Starlink, I think, is just the beginning. Right. Well, we talk a lot about that because it's the example today. But again, with so many commercial companies being in the lead of technological innovation, having technologies that suddenly could be useful in a wartime scenario, I don't think uh, as analysts or as the Department of Defense, we really know how to think that through. And, uh, you know, the example of Starlink suggests we sure need to start thinking about that and how that plays out. We might also be looking at at smaller um, private corporations as well that are, or private groups that are engaged now in the conflict. So in Ukraine, you had 
um, a thriving black hat hacker industry before the war. And once the war began, they all became white hat hackers and started going after the Russians. Um, you have groups like Bellingcat, which have been sort of ubiquitous over a number of years, but which now are going after the Russians much more specifically, trying to reveal important information and contribute to the public information debate and the strategic space in terms of information uh, availability and transparency, which Nora was talking about earlier. So this is Elon Musk is obviously sort of at the at the top of this pyramid, but the contribution that private firms can make, especially as the information and electronic sectors become more important and open up, is really non-trivial. And that even goes down to private manufacture of drones, right? which we're now seeing in Ukraine, but also elsewhere in Europe for donation to Ukraine. So the this is not all a government to government support of Ukrainian defense industries and, and national security efforts. The private sector is playing an increasing role and much of it is voluntary or, or donated. Yeah, I think I would build on that to uh, flag that, as Dr. Vensel pointed out, technology, you know, 50 years ago, the highest end technologies in the in the cutting edge of new ideas was coming out of the defense department, you know, or 75 years ago today, it's coming completely out of the private sector. And, and, you know, we're seeing this in everything from, you know, what Elon Musk can do and how many satellites he can launch at any given time, which, which makes the efforts of NASA look laughable uh, in some ways over the last two decades to the, the advent of, of artificial intelligence and, and the ability, you know, in, com- in the commercial world now to, to is doing all the front end capabilities, all the front end development on artificial intelligence and is, is rapidly transitioning to be able to sell that as a service to you know, the private sector out there and other governments, you know, so that today, you know, you can you could find artificial intelligence commercial companies that are willing to do intelligence analysis on your adversary and tell you what the adversary is going to do by stitching together the data that they can see looking inside of in, in unprotected networks that, you know, are or what the Russian logistics, you know, system works on, or what the, you know, other other adversary systems are exposed in ways that there are clues out there that now can be assembled, not by military intelligence agencies alone, but by civilian enterprises who are willing to sell that service, I suspect, to any any high bidder out there. And not even not just selling it, but we've seen the advent of people, particularly in Ukraine, taking cell phone networks and building calling lines or whatever to basically fight because everybody's got a cell phone. All those cell phones have cameras and people are sending in Intel pieces and parts and they have put together the ability to take modern technology, pull it into the military sphere, analyze it, make use of it, put it back into a targeting network with, with at very low cost and with very low tech. And I believe that that is something that no one can really escape on the modern battlefield and something that's uh, implied as we're seeing uh, some of these technologies emerge. The second piece that um, Nora started talking about, but I think is real important, is what is this? What is the oversight and control of these outside entities, larger corporate entities from a governmental perspective? And I guess there is the ability for the government to pull certain aspects or even companies or corporations into government regulations during time of war. But this is very problematic. And I believe that there are a tremendous number of questions about oversight, control, and just a lot of unanswered implications, I think, as you indicated in the article that you wrote about this recently. Yeah, I think, frankly, you know, and we actually heard one of our students talk about this this week, when uh, the the big media companies like uh, Meta or Google go in and testify in front of Congress, the questions they get are kindergarten level questions that are that are laughable to anyone who's of a generation who grew up in the digital world. And yet, you know, the, the people that are in charge in the United States of our oversight and creation of our laws and on Capitol Hill are are eras behind where the capabilities of technology and these big tech companies are today. And so big tech companies in some ways are are almost 
you know, taking on the role of nation states in terms of their power, their influence, the, the resources they have to call on, and some of the capabilities that they can provide. And we're, we're and they're largely unregulated. You know, the EU is probably doing a significantly more in the regulation arena than the U.S. government and the U.S. Congress is. So the, your ability to influence them during time of war, that legislation isn't there yet. So I think, again, this is an area where there's a, a lot more development that could be done. And they're playing such a, a large, if, if largely behind the scenes role in the wars, particularly in Ukraine, but probably in Gaza as well, that it, it needs that oversight and needs the attention and it probably needs some new thinking on legislation. Well, one thing I want to um, kind of roll back to and loop back to the, this morning is that although we are seeing a lot of things that are emerging, new combinations, new technologies, new entities, these are all very important aspects for us to analyze and, and be thinking about. There is as well the idea that a lot of things are not changing. There are strategic issues that are being implied. And what I particularly want to uh, point out there is that in irregular warfare, we talk about great power competition all the time, but a tremendous percentage of that competition is taking place in irregular environments and irregular, indirect and asymmetrical competitive pieces and ports in the larger international security sphere. Some of those enduring issues, um, non-military information narratives, strategic narratives. I think that particularly in Gaza, because of the urban population that you've mentioned, the fact that they're trapped, as Nora said, the fact that we're rubbling or they're rubbling buildings and infrastructure housing, hospitals, this sort of thing, that the turn at the strategic level of support domestically or internationally for various actions can't be taken for granted the way that it was in previous wars, where, again, not everybody has a cell phone, not everything is being broadcast, not everything is 24 hours news cycle. And yet, in some cases, I think that militaries around the world, including ours, don't necessarily pay attention to that cycle of strategic narrative that must be taken into account, that must have massive implications on timing and operations themselves. I think that's right. And I think uh, you're seeing now in the Gaza war, regardless of the uh, utility of what uh, Israeli tactics have been at the tactical level and operational level, Israel is losing the strategic conversation, is losing the strategic narrative. Um, because because the Gazans are trapped and because especially now that they're starting to conduct military activity in the southern areas where they told people would, you know, to go uh, and people believed it would be a sanctuary. Again, you know, we, we can debate about whether it's the right military approach, but it's certainly at a strategic level, the support for Israel, I think, is is weaker than it has been in an extraordinarily long time because of the way Israel is approaching the war. And again, if you might decide that this is what you need to do from a military perspective, but ultimately, all conflicts are about the strategic end state once the war stops. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're seeing in that case a, a very problematic strategic narrative emerging about Israel that has the potential to, to further harm Israeli national security in the future. I think what we've seen in Ukraine is very different. The Ukrainians from the beginning have been masterful about ensuring that their perspective gets out to the international community, uh, perhaps not none more critically than in the first few days when it wasn't clear what the United States was going to do, when it wasn't clear what NATO was going to do. And Zelensky himself uh, you know, made appearances and, and presented the case of, of Ukraine. And of course, as the war's gone on, uh, the stakes for the United States and NATO, not to mention for the Ukrainians, have grown. But the Ukrainians have done a really terrific job in ensuring that their narrative hits the international media, whether that's through uh, social media, whether that's through official news outlets, whether that's uh, bringing in uh, defense analysts. Uh, you know, uh, General Barno and I haven't been, but we have plenty of colleagues who have to go look at the situation on the ground. And Russia has done none of that. Perhaps it's not able to do that because of its position as the aggressor. Uh, and I'm sure that it is doing that. Uh, and I know it's doing that somewhat effectively with its own domestic population. Um, but internationally, there's no love lost for Russia 
in this. And that's a remarkable strategic achievement by the Ukrainians. And Tim, maybe you want to comment on Hamas, because it looks like, like the terrorist narrative about their implication for trying to force an overreaction from a yeah. stronger adversary. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I, um, I don't want to say whether Hamas is succeeding or failing, because it's very difficult to look at what's going on in Gaza and and find anything positive that's coming out of that. But at the same time, some of the things that Hamas wanted to do clearly have begun to happen. Um, and these are in some ways classic uh, tactics of other terrorist groups, smaller and significantly less capable than Hamas. Um, they wanted to put the Palestinian issue back on the geopolitical map, and it's there. Um, and it's there at a time that is going to be very difficult for Israel to deal with because of Israel's own domestic political crisis. Um, it wanted to show that Hamas was the leading actor in the struggle for Palestine and against Israel. And it succeeded in doing that in horrific ways. But that matters to some of the audiences that it's appealing to. Um, it provoked a disproportionate response that was almost unavoidable because, as Nora talked about, just the nature of Gaza, the contained area, the population density, it was clear that there was going to be a fairly quickly after military operations started in Gaza, that there would be an international response that would get increasingly negative. That's almost unavoidable because of the context of the, and the character of the war. Last but not least, and this I think is a little bit more interesting, is um, Hamas has clearly been trying to escalate this thing. And Hezbollah has chosen to not dive in wholeheartedly. Um, that's not to say that it isn't carrying out activities, but it has not chosen to be um, a full member of this new war. Uh, the Houthis, however, have. And that's kind of interesting um, because they said right out front, once they started launching drones and missiles, they were doing this because of Gaza. So they have linked themselves with that. And that, again, is perhaps a little bit unusual. Um, I think one thing that we're seeing, though, and I wouldn't necessarily say this is a norm, but it's something that I think we'll have to deal with increasingly. Um, some groups that are carrying on uh, consistent terrorism and political violence in the international community have become much stronger. They have become quasi-states. And we identified this early with Hezbollah, but Hamas clearly is another example. Um, and dealing with terrorism emerging from those entities is very, very different from dealing with other kinds of terrorist threats. Because the groups that are carrying them out, they're embedded, they have political control, they have perhaps political support over a geographic area. I mean, um, this is a much more complex problem, and ISIS is another example of it. Uh, how often it can happen, it's not really clear, but Israel has a particularly complex strategic situation because it faces at least two of these entities. And if it's not careful, the Palestinian Authority may move toward that. That's clearly what Hamas wants to drive. So entrenched, embedded ideological foes that are willing to use massive acts of terrorism and frankly, close up barbarity, the way that ISIS and Hamas has carried out its major strikes, that has a very different psychological response, uh, psychological effect and a different response from states than mass casualties through, say, a bomb. Um, so, you know, this is a shift that we only have an N of, you know, two or three. I don't want to say this is a trend, but these are incidents and examples that we need to think about very differently as we think about responding to terrorism or irregular warfare. Last comments around the room. We'll start with uh, Nora and go to Tim and finish with uh, John Barnum. I would go back to where we started and uh, emphasize the fact that we are uh, quite unexpectedly living through two wars that are illustrating the dynamics of how warfare has changed and how new technologies across the spectrum are really being used in warfare. The United States has the luxury of not being a direct combatant in either of these fights, although, of course, the U.S. Uh, is supporting, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine and uh, Israel more, obviously. But the U.S. military has a chance to look at these wars dispassionately because the U.S. is not directly fighting in them and try to draw some lessons that might apply 
to the U.S. Again, some of those, uh, the dynamics of the battlefield, the unique situation, particularly in Gaza, uh, geographically, um, may limit some of the lessons. But, you know, I I go back, if you look at the army uh, after Vietnam, the army uh, really focused on sort of getting rid of those lessons and focusing on uh, its preferred vision of the future. And this offers an opportunity to really learn about how dynamics are unfolding in the real world in real time uh, in ways that the U.S. might have to fight again in the future. And so, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons we wrote the column we did on learning from both of these wars. I think that's going to be an immense task as these wars continue to go on, unfortunately, to figure out what parts of it are relevant for the United States going forward, again, across the conflict spectrum, and what parts uh, are unique to those cases. Um, I am no expert in this, but I think one thing these two wars should make us think more carefully about um, is laws of war, international law, and non-combatant immunity. Um, There was a trend after the Second World War to try and push non-combatant immunity uh, because of the horror of that war and the impact of technology on civilian populations. Um, Irregular warfare has gone in a different direction in the last 30 years, where terrorism has become a routine tactic by one side or sometimes both in civil and internal wars. Um, where different uh, military cultures um, fighting in a tribal sense um, changes the calculus for who is a combatant and who is a non-combatant. And we found this in Iraq. We found this in Afghanistan. Uh, the Israelis are finding it in uh, in Hamas. When, when um, military groups or irregular groups are based around family networks, Uh, Every teen could, in theory, be a combatant, especially if you're allowing women combatants. And so this idea of non-combatant immunity and of limiting um, casualties to civilians is going to be harder and harder both to determine and to enforce. And that will affect the strategic costs of intervention uh, across a wide range of contingencies. I'm not sure it's something we can control, but it's something we'd better be aware of. Um, So this is going to be an ongoing strategic communication problem. General. I think my, my thoughts would be that uh, the U.S. military needs to pay very careful attention to the return of asymmetry in the vulnerabilities that are baked into how the U.S. military is organized and equipped today, because we're seeing a, a profusion of new capabilities out there that are going to put some of those very exquisite high-end capabilities at risk in ways we've never seen before. So whether it's trying to maintain air superiority when you've got a air littoral that's full of very low-cost, proliferated, you know, thousands and thousands of drones, or it's trying to protect your naval ships at sea or in the in the littoral from uh, low-cost loitering munitions and swarming attacks, we're simply not prepared for that. It's not the kind of wars we've envisioned. And these two wars we're seeing right now are giving us some very painful examples of what that could look like for the U.S. I think this is a tremendously important conversation. I appreciate you joining us this morning, analyzing what security professionals need to be thinking about. There is a question of what our adversaries are learning from these conflicts as well. I think that's particularly important as we begin to think about not only what the U.S. is learning, what the U.S. military needs to learn, um, but what are our adversaries taking away from them. These conflicts have important implications for other things that we weren't entirely able to talk about uh, this morning. One of them is geoeconomics, particularly on the flow of energy and food supplies. It has uh, um, contextual implications for third-party intervention and expansion of these wars, uh, the strategic question of time and how long these wars can continue with or without the support that they need, and also the strategic narratives that are being delivered, in some cases inadequately, and in some cases, as Dr. Bensel has said, uh, uh, very well. And so uh, these, these wars have a tremendous import to future of warfare, implications for the structure of U.S. military capabilities and uh, organizations that we need to invest in or retrain to. And um, 
a number of important aspects of conversation that, that we drew on today. If you're interested in uh, reading the article that uh, uh, these two have written, uh, the name of it was Learning from Real Wars, Gaza and Ukraine, David Barno and Nora Bensel, published in War on the Rocks. I thank you for your time and joining us for this episode of The Trident. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Trident, a podcast on irregular warfare. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the U.S. Naval War College. Please find us at www.usnwc.edu backslash C-I-W-A-G and consider subscribing to our bi-weekly newsletter, The Patrol, or listen to further episodes of The Trident. Until next time.